Well, joining me today is John Cohen, who is um, an expert on uh, what's happening in America with gun violence, especially um, these mass shootings. And the first question I want to ask you, John, is when you, during your studies, when you've looked at all of the kinds of factors, I think people in rural America tend to think, well, it can't happen here. This is an El Paso. This is a Dayton. This is a Tucson problem. It's not a problem that we would experience in Fargo or in Bismarck or, or even in... Um, so so what, when you look at it, do you think any place in this country is really immune from the kind of uh, problems that we're seeing right now with, uh, with uh, gun violence? No, I think unfortunately, particularly as it relates to mass shootings, uh, we are not only in the midst of a multi-year trend uh, in which we're experiencing an increase in mass shootings, but when examining them, we see that they're not limited to any specific geographic area. So they're not just occurring in big cities. Uh, we're seeing these types of shootings occur in small towns, um, you know, rural areas, suburban areas. Uh, and urban areas. So, uh, and it really has to do with the uh, the dynamics of the shooter uh, versus the geographic location where the shooter is located. Um, but no, the, the sad fact is that as we sit here today and ha are having this discussion, uh, these types of attacks can occur anywhere. Well, and and the other point that I think we should make is that in in rural America, there's kind of an immediate reaction to a complete focus being on gun legislation. Not saying rural America is necessarily opposed to additional restraints and additional background checks, but I am saying that in a place where you see a large number of guns and you also see people who feel very strongly that they may be 40, 50 minutes away from the nearest law enforcement officer and so they feel compelled to, to um, secure a weapon for their own security, um, they, they are really looking for solutions. They're really looking for what's created this dynamic. How do we solve this? And in our conversation, John, that the, the, the interesting thing that I think that you bring to this is your awareness of who these shooters are and how we can maybe do a better job of prevention if we know the dynamic of the shooter themselves. And so in your studies, can you kind of give me what you think is a, is a pretty generalized profile of, um, of a shooter who would engage in mass shooting? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So uh, this is work that uh, I was involved in while I was at the Department of Homeland Security back in 2012, 13, 14 timeframe. And we started seeing a shift in the threat environment. Uh, prior to that point, you know, our primary concern uh, from a mass shooting or mass casualty attack perspective was the threat posed by individuals who were recruited uh, or inspired, but primarily recruited by foreign terrorist organizations. Uh, they were trained, indoctrinated, prepared, and dispatched by a foreign terrorist organization uh, to conduct an attack in this country. And in the, in the 2014 timeframe in particular, we started to see a shift. And, and after leaving the Department of Homeland Security, I've been working with the FBI and others to really gain a better understanding of why we're seeing an increase in mass shootings in the United States and what are the behavioral characteristics of the shooters. And what we found 
is that uh, for the most part, and, and, and I would also say probably almost without exception, whether the shooter uh, is motivated by some extremist ideology or by some personal grievance, these shooters tend to share common behavioral characteristics. They tend to be disaffected, uh, socially disconnected uh, individuals who feel that their lives have been a failure. They tend to come from dysfunctional families. Uh, they're angry, and that anger causes them to uh, search across uh, different platforms on the accessible through the internet and find some cause or grievance that gives them the justification to express that anger uh, through violence. And so the way we kind of frame it in a, in a, in a shortened way is it, it's not the ideology, it's the psychology. Uh, and yes, terrorist and extremist groups uh, have taken an understanding that this population of people are out there and have used social media uh, to inspire people to conduct attacks on behalf of their cause. But for the most part, these are individuals who are angry, who want to express that anger through violence. Uh, they spend a lot of time online. Uh, they connect with a cause or they formulate a grievance in their mind. And then independent of any organization, they go out and commit uh, a mass shooting or mass casualty attack. Well, when we look at it, obviously the, the two things that get said as the, this issue becomes politically polarized are, you know, on one side, it's all about the guns. On the other side, it's about video games. It's about mental health. And, and what we really know in all of this is it, it is so much more complicated than I think the politics of today are really um, addressing. And so I want to talk about kind of some of these uh, proposed solutions, and one of which is video games. Do you, when, when you look at the profiles that you've done, of, um, of the shooters, do you see um, a radicalization or a increased um, anger level as a result of video games? Well, what we've seen, I don't know if it's as a result, uh, and I think you raise a really interesting point, because what we've learned, it's not just one factor, it's a combination of factors. So while most of these shooters tend to be mentally unwell or, and many of them have diagnosed or undiagnosed mental health issues, this isn't simply a mental health problem. While you know a number of these shooters use firearms to commit their attacks, this isn't a problem that's just going to be solved by um, background checks. Um, so th there's a number of factors that come together, uh, and it's important to understand that because if we're going to stop these attacks, uh, we have to have a, you know greater understanding of of the totality of circumstances surrounding an individual and assess whether on an individual basis this person. Um, poses a risk. So to your question specifically, uh, yeah, you know, we have found that in, in almost every case, um, these individuals spend uh, an incredible amount of time online looking at, you know, extremist material, looking at material regarding past, um, uh, past shootings, um, looking, reading and, and immersing themselves uh, in hate filled rhetoric that's accessible online, and they tend to spend a lot of time playing video games. Um, and now, you know, whether, whether that's a causal factor or just an indicator is a separate issue. But, you know, the, the, there are neurologists that we've spoken to who consider that immersing yourself in a highly stimulating sensory environment that's very violent uh, could potentially impact brain structure. 
Uh, and we know that uh, using video games can have positive effects on learning and socialization. There hasn't been, quite frankly, a lot of study uh, to determine whether uh, the opposite is true, whether um, extensive use by people with certain types of characteristics uh, of these video games can actually be a negative factor. So it's an area that requires more study, um, but it is a common characteristic amongst these shooters that they do spend a lot of time in these games. And they equate to some degree um, the actual physical act of shooting uh, as being a part of a game. We know some of these shooters have actually talked about uh, getting a higher score than past mass shooters. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that I, I think it's fair to say that the jury is out on video games, but to simply point the finger and say that's the problem, and if only we would curtail the the violence in video games, that would solve the problem. I think for every mother who had a son or a daughter who played these games who um, have not had uh, this reaction to them, we kind of can poo-poo that. Um, one of the concerns that I have about the focus on mental health is number one, um, in North Dakota, a place that people care deeply about their gun rights. Um, one of the things I discovered when I was attorney general was that people would almost do anything that they could to avoid losing their gun rights, whether that was um, you know, going to jail for a misdemeanor as opposed to pleading guilty to a felony, which would have automatically suspended their ability to secure a, a firearm and to, to um, uh, go hunting, for instance. So, so when you look at it, one of the concerns that I have is that if we say, okay, everybody who has a diagnosis of a bipolar disease or depression, um, that is going to automatically go into a database and you're going to be de denied gun rights. The reaction in states like North Dakota may be, I'm not going to seek treatment for my mental health. And, and so I think we have to be really careful in all of this that we don't engage in the law of unintended consequences. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, you know, as we've looked at this issue, you know, again, I, I don't come at this from a political perspective. Um, I've worked for Democrats, I've worked for Republicans. Um, I, you know, I'm a gun owner. Um, I understand and support the Second Amendment. Um, but I also am a strong believer, having been a law enforcement professional for 35 plus years, that uh, if we assess somebody to be high risk of conducting an act of violence, uh, that uh, there should be steps that should be taken uh, in an appropriate way that restrict that person's access to firearms during that period where they're deemed to be high risk. And you know there are states that have employed techniques uh, that do that quite effectively. I mean, just on a personal note, you know, uh, I live here in Maryland. Um, my son goes to a high school. Um, there was some post that a former student um, put onto Instagram suggesting that he was going to attack, uh, conduct a shooting at that high school. Um, the, the students who saw the post went to a school resource officer uh, and, and showed those posts to that school resource officer, the threat management unit of the police department, which has mental health professionals and specially trained police officers, conducted what they call a, a threat assessment investigation, they, which basically looks at that individual from the perspective of high, are they a high risk? And then they were able to use the state's red flag laws to restrict that person's access to firearms while that person received treatment and the underlying issues were um, addressed 
that made that person a danger to society at that time period. And so it's a combination of skill sets, right? And it's a combination of capabilities. It's the it's people coming forward and reporting suspicious activities. It's local law enforcement working with mental health professionals to have the capability of understanding whether somebody is, because of the totality of circumstances, a high risk of committing an act of violence. It's having the resources and capabilities to address the underlying issues uh, that may be driving that person towards violence. Maybe it's working with the family, with the school system, uh, with, uh, with mental health professionals, with social service providers. Um, but it, and then it's a continual reassessment um, so that you can make a determination whether the risk posed by that person is increasing or whether that risk is decreasing uh, and you don't have to be so concerned about it. This is not a complicated thing to do. It's being done in a growing number of jurisdictions around the country. And there are attacks that have been stopped because of this um, focus on, on risk management versus simply making it an arrest and prosecution. Um, but the, the trouble with Washington right now is that we are so politically polarized uh, and uh, you can't even have the discussions uh, on Capitol Hill or, or within the executive branch um, to begin framing the problem this way and taking steps so that the federal government can support these local efforts. And that's what's most disappointing to me uh, is that uh, we haven't been able to break free of our tribal, political, polarized uh, relationships in, in order to address a problem that law enforcement officials that I'm talking to at the national level uh, believe is the, the primary threat facing Americans today from a mass violence perspective. Yeah, I, you know, it, it is absolutely incredible how everybody goes to their rhetoric, everybody goes to their corner, and they want to they fight the battle based on their lens of what the problem is. And we know that um, over the years, and here's another huge challenge, that there have been restrictions placed on uh, entities like the Centers for Disease Control in studying this as a public health problem. There have been laws passed in states like Florida, which were eventually overturned on First Amendment um, grounds, saying a, a doctor could not discuss eliminating firearms from a home if he saw these warning signs or she saw these warning signs. And so we've got to get out of the lens of looking at this simply from the political perspective and start analyzing this from evidence-based law enforcement proven strategies that can prevent this. Now, I have a question. I don't, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work or with um, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin did an article for the New York Times after a long period of study on looking at what we could find out from looking at credit card purchases. Because when you go back and take a look at the, the shooters, they don't tend to pay cash for um, the, this level of uh, weapons and, and armor and you know ammunition. They tend to put it on a credit card. And for every one of the shooters that he analyzed, he saw this massive amount of charges, and maybe not all in just one gun store, um, it, that, that was unique and definitely indicated a challenge or an arming of, of these individuals. Have you looked at kind of engaging with the credit card companies and with the financial institutions to track kind of purchasing trends that would uh, alarm anyone who was looking at this? Or is that something that hasn't hit the radar yet? No, but we have, and you raise, raise an excellent point. Um, 
so the, you know, I was trained, you know, as a police officer, I was trained, if you want to solve a problem, you have to understand the problem. And if there's any good news in all of this is that through the secret work of the Secret Service and the FBI and state and local law enforcement analysts, we have a really good understanding, not only of the uh, current threat environment, uh, the behavioral characteristics of these shooters, and the behaviors they exhibit prior to conducting an attack through the various stages uh, as they go from the stage of anger uh, to actual violent attack. And, and to your point, they don't fly under the radar. They exhibit behaviors um, that are observed by people who interact with them, um, family members, coworkers, people who go to school with them, um, or behaviors that they exhibit online through their social media and other um, um, you know, internet activities that are apparent to people. Um, so the, the question is, what more do we have to do to document those behaviors, train the public or educate the public what to look for, and then train law enforcement um, to look at all of those indicators as they assess risk. So industry, this is going to require a different interaction with industry. Social media companies, for example, have been very resistant to allow law enforcement to um, examine material on their platforms as part of efforts to detect individuals who may be exhibiting um, behaviors associated with these types of threats. Credit card companies haven't really thought about this um, from the perspective of how uh, transactions on their networks or transaction through their infrastructure uh, may be pre-incident indicators. So I think the first step is we have to educate the public and police, but the second part of this is then uh, working with industry to find ways that allow greater access the other thing we haven't even gone into yet is these free speech implications. So as we develop a national approach to dealing with these issues, we can't forget that sometimes things that are posted online, which may seem threatening, uh, is protected speech. So there's a lot of sort of challenges in not only um, recalibrating the system so we're better able to prevent these types of attacks, but working with industry to make sure that they're a part of the solution um, as we do so. If I can do an illustration on working with social media companies, we did a, um, a, a, a analysis of where human trafficking was occurring. And, and as a result, we saw incredibly bad behavior on the part of Backpage.com. We were prevented from, uh, allegedly prevented from curtailing that behavior or holding the people on Backpage accountable because they said this is a free speech issue. Um, we spent a lot of time working this issue to try and find that lane that would address just the bad behavior, the criminal behavior, and not infringe on, on First Amendment rights. And, you know, it can be done, is my point. We passed SESTA. It, it, it worked pretty well. We shut down Backpage as a result of this. And so there's, there's ways that we can do this. When people throw up their hands and say, can't be done, First Amendment, Second Amendment, that's absolutely not true. Where there's a will, there's a way we can respect people's constitutional rights, but also protect the public. And, and I think the public has an expectation that we're going to do this. But if we simply say it's about video games and mental health, or on the other side, it's about access to guns, we will miss the real challenge here kind of going forward, I think. And so I just really, really applaud the work that you're doing. I wish everybody in America could hear this discussion so that they could feel like 
yes, there are professionals out there who are addressing this from a professional standpoint, from an evidence-based standpoint, and we can, in fact, solve this problem. I think, you know, I, I don't just think about the kids out there who are terrified to go back to school now. I don't just think about the mothers who are worried about sending their sons or daughters to school or to church or to, you know, Walmart. I worry about the mom who's sitting there saying, can my son be one of these people? And what does she do? And what can she do to engage both the mental health or, or um, uh, the healthcare system, but also engage the law enforcement system to basically sound the alarm? I mean, we've seen this over and over again. And maybe you can, with the last few minutes we have remaining, uh, comment on kind of those early signals. You know, Parkland, we knew that this was a very troubled individual. Um, the, the Gabby Giffords uh, uh, shooter, basically his parents knew, in fact, disabled his car, which is why he went to the shopping mall in a taxi. I mean, it's, it, uh, it's, it's not it, the, the mother um, in the El Paso shooting now saying, look, she called and said, what can I do about him buying this level of, uh, of uh, weapons? And, and so I think that what, what we have to do is the people who are closest to someone who, who now has this sense, could my son or daughter or my husband or my best friend be somebody who would commit this act? What do I do if I suspect this? And I think that's a really critical question because if you're going to get people to come forward, you know, on the see something, say something kind of vein, you've got to give them the uh, education and the mechanism to know that it's going to be treated appropriately. Right. And that's the key issue, right? I, I get phone calls pretty regularly from uh, people just like you described. They're concerned about one of their loved one or somebody at work. They call the local police and the response they get from the local police or sheriff's department is that, uh, well, in, unless they break the law, there's really nothing we can do. Uh, or um, the, the police will respond to what we used to call a check the welfare call, which basically a, a uniformed police officer shows up and says, do you feel like hurting yourself? Do you feel like hurting somebody else? Uh, and if the person says no, they clear the call. So, part, you know, I think what we've seen is family members tend to pick up on when their loved one is, uh, is heading towards perhaps a crisis. Uh, and the Secret Service and the FBI call a, 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 an important phase in the discovery process of potential shooters. They call it leakage, which is basically an articulation of intent uh, by the individual preparing to commit a crime, where we really need to focus the attention and where I'm hoping uh, that the administration will begin to focus more resources on is getting the training out to state and local law enforcement, helping state and local community or helping local communities uh, establish the capacity by bringing together law enforcement and mental health professionals in a working relationship so that when you know the mother or the father or the brother and the sister do pick up the phone and make that difficult call to law enforcement um, that law enforcement takes in that information a, a risk assessment is completed uh, and if that person's at high risk of committing an act uh, a threat management strategy is put in place uh, to reduce, reduce the risk that that person will go in and commit a mass shooting. That's where we need to be focusing our attention. And, I, and I'm just, just to close, I'm just so concerned that the, the political environment here in Washington 
it's going to stand in the way of us taking not expensive steps, you know, steps that don't cost a lot of money, but could have a tremendous impact in reducing the chance that this type of shooting will occur in the next, you know, in the future. So that's where I hope we'll devote our attention. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think the other thing that that um, and and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but that the epidemic of suicide in this country is not without its kind of overhang here. And by that, I mean, when when I was attorney general, we treated every homicide as a potential suicide. So, so what we saw repeatedly, especially in domestic violence situations, was someone who would um, do something so heinous and so horrible, but also with the intent of committing suicide at the same time. And so when people look at gun violence and they say, well, that's suicide, that's not, um, that's not homicide, I, I just want to say don't disconnect those two issues because we really do need to look at this whole epidemic of gun violence in a broad kind of holistic approach. And you have to include the propensity towards suicide in that analysis, in my opinion. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's been recent studies that have that have illustrated that people are angry uh, and people are lonely. Uh, and um, that I don't think there's any I don't think there's any, um, I think there's a relationship between the fact that we are an angry, lonely society and we're seeing an increase in this type of attack. And, and one of the factors that we find to be present in every single uh, mass shooting is that these are people who are looking for a sense of social connection, uh, people who are looking for a sense of life meaning, and in a perverse way, the, conducting a mass murder on behalf of some cause or grievance gives them that sense of purpose and meaning. Uh, and we really need to understand that if we're going to be successful uh, in taking steps to address this growing threat. Well, I don't think there's any doubt about it. I hope, I hope that you stay engaged. I hope that you use every platform you can to get your message out. Because well, we'll do it my together. fear is, yeah, well, I'm, I'm with you because my fear is that everybody will grab for that kind of ideological ring that suits their um, kind of lens, their political talking points, and we will miss the forest for the trees. And it important work has been done by you and many of your colleagues in law enforcement to address the kind of overall dynamic of what's happening here. And if that work gets ignored, um, to just simply do, do the, the quick, easy thing, we will not solve this problem. And so keep talking, John. Thank you so much. I think I think your your analysis is so critical. It's so important. I think that we need to turn this problem around and uh, look at it from every angle, whether it is financial services, what can they tell us on early indication? What can mental health professionals tell us? What can we tell a doctor who's concerned um, that their patient might do this? What can we tell a mother who's concerned? And how can we respect the rights of individuals and I'm, I'm talking about both First and Second Amendment rights of individuals, but also protect the rights of our population to live in a society that is free of gun violence. And so um, we just, we don't have all the answers, but there is a lot more known than what people think. And there's a lot of things, as you said, that can be done that won't cost a lot of money, but they will integrate um, a lot of, uh, a lot of, 
professionals in solving this problem together. And so thanks, John. I look forward to um, ongoing discussions with you. And I just want everybody who listens to our One Country Hot Dish uh, podcast to know that um, this, this is not a big city problem exclusively. This is something that can happen in rural America. And some of the solutions, when, when John was going through the discussion of what happened in your Maryland high school, I thought, number one, the high school in Bowman, North Dakota, doesn't have a resource officer, doesn't have the immigration that you're talking about. And so we're going to have to come up with different kinds of solutions and different strategies for rural America. And so we want to put that on the table as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, and thank you so much for having me on. It was nice uh, talking with you about this important issue. Um, and I think if we can keep getting it out there uh, that we do know a lot and, and there's there are things that we can do, uh, perhaps the public will demand that our, our leaders take action that will actually help uh, address this problem. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know anyone in the public who who looks at this and, and goes to necessarily the simplistic solution. Yep. You know, there are things that we can do on, on all sides if we have the political will and if people, you know, kind of come together in, in good faith to really address gun violence in America. Thanks so much, John, for being on. Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope that you all will follow us on Twitter at underscore one country, all one word, underscore, or join us on uh, the internets at onecountryproject.org.